He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, December 18, 2021. A lot of events happening in December. Happy holidays, of course. Our troubadour has a special song, Blow, Wind, Blow. How apropos, given the windstorm that Colorado went through, but the worst storm that came out of Kentucky. Other states also impacted Mayfield, wiped out. Feel so bad for those people. Out of Kentucky comes another big story. Mitch McConnell may be turning on Donald Trump. Thank goodness for that January 6th commission. We are getting to the bottom of things, including the culpability and complicity of Texas Governor Perry, Rick Perry. I saw him once give the worst speech ever. Western Conservative Summit. He had to blame it on back pain pills. Because it was so horrible, it ruined his presidential chances. That and that debate with when he forgot the names of the various departments he was going to eliminate. Can you believe that guy was a cabinet secretary under Trump? And now we know why. Such a sick fan suggesting ways to steal the election to the detriment of our democracy. And I hope Merrick Garland gets busy. I wish Liz Cheney was the attorney general. She went to Chicago Law School before that, the Colorado College. She is qualified. Maybe I should be the prosecutor of Donald Trump for these crimes. I prosecuted crimes for a long time in Colorado. That point came back to me when I got a call from our featured guest this week, Kevin Vaughn. He said, Craig, guess what? We found out that the Innocence Project is re-examining hair evidence. One of the cases is the Holler trial. And I thought, oh, my gosh. And I had to get a hold of Christina Holler, Tom's mother, Nedra, and I spoke with them both. And as I analyzed this situation, I'm not too worried. At the back end of this show, we will play the Channel 9 report. But better yet, we have reporter Kevin Vaughn, who is fascinating. The first half hour... We talk about Kevin's amazing career in journalism. Then, toward the back half hour, we talk about the Holler case and the big news he broke on my birthday, December 16, an interesting day always. It was great to be in New York the week before to give you a live report about the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. Closing arguments coming up on Monday. The defense rested. Ghislaine told the judge, the government has improved its case beyond a reasonable doubt, so I'm not testifying. Jeff Paliuka called the most interesting witness, Eva Anderson, who was Miss Sweden back in the day, went on to become a doctor. She was girlfriends with Jeff Epstein for a long time, and she said it was normal enough. Then she married another billionaire, and that billionaire, it's been suggested, has participated with Epstein in improper relationships, but the wife denied it, Eva Anderson. 
it appears she just had breast cancer problems, and she says her memory is not great. But we know that Eva's always been on Jeff Epstein's side, because if you read Barry Levine's book, The Spider, my guest last week, you know that she spoke up for Jeffrey Epstein even when he got convicted in Palm Beach, trusted her kids with him, etc. And it's fascinating that my pal Jeff Paliuka, a friend of long standing, he was guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge two months ago, he was the one asking the questions of this doctor, the former girlfriend of Jeff Epstein. So that's real interesting. They called some other witnesses like Elizabeth Loftus, a memory expert who I got to cross-examine in a triple homicide case that I prosecuted back in the uh, early 90s. What a busy period that was in my life. As a Denver prosecutor, the Holler case is so big on my mind. And when Kevin Vaughn called me early December, told me about the situation, then came down, did an, an interview at my law office, and then they watched the report he prepared with a lot of old footage of Craig back 27 years ago. I looked a little different, but you be the judge of that. Thanks for listening to my podcast. Without further ado, Kevin Vaughn, and after him, our troubadour with his great song, Blow, Wind, Blow. Thank you for listening. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MBLaw LLC.com. Now back to the Greg Silverman Show. Hey, Greg. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for doing my podcast. No problem. I don't know whether to introduce you as an author or a journalist. What's your preference? Uh, journalist, I guess. That's what I do every day. <laughs> I thought that's what you'd say. Remind people of the books you've written and how they can acquire them. I uh, co-authored one book called The Ledge uh, about a mountain climbing accident on Mount Rainier involving a couple of Colorado guys. Uh, it's still available in paperback. It's been out for a few years now. Uh, it's made the New York Times bestseller list, and uh, it's a really in interesting and tragic and at the same time inspirational story. Tell us your story. I know it from interviewing you on my radio show, but... Uh, tell everybody about your roots. Uh, I was born in Montana, came to Denver as a small child when my uh, parents uh, moved me here without consulting me. I was about three. Uh, they just decided it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, pretty much have been in Colorado most of my life since then. 
Uh, name name, name the towns. I like to get some specificity. Where in Montana and where in northern Colorado? Uh, I was born in uh, Great Falls, Montana, and uh, lived there till, like I said, I was about, I think I was about three and a half or so. And then we moved uh, to the Denver area, and I grew up in Adams County, unincorporated Adams County initially for a few years, and then eventually North Glen stumbled into journalism at North Glen high school as a sophomore when I took a introduction to journalism class. That was the only class available to fill the last slot I needed to get my schedule done. And, um, I really kind of, uh, liked it. I'd always been a, you know, I tell people I was a news nerd. Um, I had been reading the paper, you know, from, as far back as I remember, my parents were both voracious readers of the newspaper and watchers of the television news, the nightly television news. And Those by that, by that do you mean that your parents took the Post and the news? Yes. Yes, they took so the Post did mine. and the news. And, you know, when I was a kid, the Post was an afternoon paper. Yes, so you are old. A, I'm old, yes. too. By the way, my earliest memory is going with my dad on a weekend to try to sell homes in North Glen because he was an attorney and he also had his real estate license and he was working with Jordan Perlmutter and Mac and they uh-huh. built a community named yep, North Yep, I grew Glen. up in a Perlmac house. Yep, I grew up in Perlmac house in North Glen. All right, give, a, give an endorsement. Thumbs up or thumbs down? <laughs> oh, it was a great place to go. Yes, yeah. I had a Mac house too in Denver, 1643 South Ivy Way. It just happened to be they'd built around the city, but they built a whole community in North Glen, and that construction was first rate. Thanks for saying that. <laughs> yeah, so um, anyway, d- uh, um, the journalism class that I took, you know, most of the year was, uh, uh, you know, was learning about journalism and how to do it. But at the end of the year, the and that class was almost all sophomores. At the end of the year, we got to put out one edition of the school paper, and they called it the Cub Edition. And, um, and uh, I just thought that was about the coolest thing i'd ever well, done what did you I, uh, do what did you write about who did you expose <laughs> at the high school <laughs> uh you know the only thing i can really remember that i wrote about was i wrote a a brief very terrible profile of the north Glen mayor uh former denver bronco odell, odell barry i i love odell what did you do <laughs> um he was a good he was a good friend of my dad's and um uh, they were in the rotary club together and stuff and so i um I talked to him, but I took terrible notes. I didn't end up with any good quotes, and it basically, you know, was like an eight or ten paragraph uh, story about like what he wanted to do as mayor. And, and I haven't looked at it in years, but I know how terrible it is. Okay, are you are you today. are you old enough to remember Odell Berry playing? No, oh, not I quite. Picture not Rick quite. up church only ten or twelve years before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he was he was he was stocky too. He was tough, and my dad knew him. And when I was playing high school basketball, I think through the auspices of Odell Berry, I ended up at some elite sports dinner, sitting with Alex Hannum, who was then coaching the Denver Pro Team. It was a night of my life. I won't soon forget it, and I owe it to Odell Berry. What what a man he was. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, Is he still alive? I gotta look that up while you're talking. I think I believe so. I hope so. Um, but it's been several years since I've actually seen him. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, so what about see. college? Did you move on from North Glen High? Or? Yeah, yeah. So I I, uh, I joined the newspaper staff my junior and senior years. I was editor of my high school paper my senior year, and then I. I pretty much decided then I was going to go to college. I wasn't a great student in high school. I took a lot of hard classes, but I also didn't work that hard in some of them. So my college opportunities were somewhat limited because of my GPA. I mean, I had a good score on the ACT, but I had a bad GPA. But I got out. I got the diploma. So uh, at that time, uh, Metro State had a rule that anybody with a high school or Colorado high school diploma would be admitted. So I applied at Metro state and, uh, I just dove right into journalism. I took three journalism classes my first semester. And, um, by the end of the semester, I was working on the college paper. Um, I was editor of the college paper my junior year. I think I was 20 when I was named editor. And I think at that, that time I was the youngest editor they'd ever had. And uh, I was also writing for the Northland Thornton Sentinel and I was doing some freelance work and so forth and uh Talk you know, about roots. Great... yeah can yeah, i just, just uh, finish up on odell berry who's very much yeah, yeah. alive and i i want to get him on my podcast now he played in 1964 and 65 there my brother and my dad and i were sitting in the east bleachers watching him play uh, for the Broncos in 64 and 65. He was only 5'10", but he was stocky. He became a real yep. estate agent and mayor of North Glen. But yep. here's the cool thing, because I had Federico Pignon, and I read his autobiography. In 1980, when Carter had to fend off uh, Kennedy at the Madison Square Garden at the Democratic National Convention, Odell Berry was delegate, along with Federico Pignon, one other person, and... They they were uncommitted. They weren't really sold on Carter. And anyway, I, I digress, but Odell Berry, very much alive and part of your life and mine, too. Yeah, um, th- this reminds me. So my uh, my dad was a, a, a lifelong Republican, but um, he really respected Odell and liked Odell. And when Odell ran for mayor in Northland, my dad uh, worked his rear off to help get him elected and in fact um odell hired me and a bunch of other people to distribute flyers you know door hangers and i think he i think he paid me a nickel a door (laughs) to hang you know little pamphlets with his campaign uh materials and so forth and uh that was a lot of fun i remember my dad was really uh excited when he got elected Oh, how Um, cool is that? I I love swapping old Denver stories. And I I think it's important because, I mean, look, uh, 1980, Democratic Party was trying to define itself. Uh, Odell played a role in that. But you're a journalist. Let's go back to that. Uh, You've been working in an industry which has seen great times and bad times and really disorienting times and a lot of people have washed out but how many decades have you been doing this now kevin and we can so go I, back let's go back to north Glen high school count that yes uh well so 40 years i mean i my uh my first year on the uh 
school paper on the staff full time would have been 80, 81. I also had, uh, I, I started a paper when I was in uh, fourth grade. Uh, that doesn't was, uh, count. Um, I like it, it that. Fold, I, I, it folded I, after one issue. <laughs> Well, then it definitely doesn't count. I like you starting in 1980, 1981, because it was June 1, 1980, yeah. that I walked into the DA's office as an intern, along with yeah. my CU Law School pals, Bill Ritter, Michael Cohen, Velveeta Golightly, and Karen Steinhauser. And we all got yeah. hired to be interns right when you were starting to write for the North Glen Times. Thank God you didn't write about us. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, I graduated uh, high school. I went to college. I uh, I spent one summer in college. I I went to New Mexico and lived in a little in the little town of Las Vegas, New Mexico, and got sure, a full time job. Highlands. Yep, got a full time job at the at the Las Vegas Daily Optic and spent the summer there. Covered my first murder, my first court cases. Really, the first time I really covered hard news. Uh, I mean, I did some hard news stuff in college, but it's not quite the same. And, uh, Oh my gosh, what a name, the daily optic, the daily optic. Yeah. Um, let's see. I, uh, I graduated from Metro and, um, I got hired pretty quickly after that, uh, by Bill Spencer out at the Fort Morgan times. And, uh, uh, and I just, uh, I had the time of my life. I was, uh, I was paid initially two hundred seventy-five dollars a week, and uh, and uh, we covered we covered Morgan County. I covered crime and courts and sports and business and what are the know, big everything. sports there? You're a golfer, right? Yes, I play golf. Um, yeah, every every July Fourth, Fort Morgan had their CGA event at their Fort right. Morgan golf course. To me, that yep. was a big deal. Because I would try yep. to win, and I never did. Never really even came close, but it, it's a fun course. It's a fun course, and, you know, the number one hole, if you play it in the afternoon on a hot day when the grass is really laying down and it's really hot, you can drive the green. It's drivable. Like number it's one drivable. in Cherry Hill, it's only different. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you need a pretty good roll, so the grass has got to be hot, dry, and matted down. But It's sort of like number one it. at Willis Case on a yeah, hot, dry I day. I haven't, I haven't played there in a long time. But, well, uh, anyway, Fort Morgan, anyway, what other golf uh, meccas did you work in? Uh, let's see. So I left Fort Morgan to go to Fort Collins. In, uh, Beautiful courses there. 1989, yep. Uh, uh, worked at the Colorado in there for eight years, covered, you know, you name it. Um the return of uh, hostage Tom Sutherland after he was released in Lebanon and, uh, you know, wildfires and cops and courts and, you know, everything you can imagine at a, at a paper that size. I mean, we had. Right. That's had a big it. step up. What is the market that the Coloradoans trying to capture? Is it well beyond Larimer County or that's it? I think it's pretty much Larimer County now. I mean, there's a paper in Loveland as well. Um, and there are papers, you know, in Windsor and some of the other towns right around there. Um, so I, I, at the time, we were we were hyper focused on the city of Fort Collins mm -hmm. and the surrounding area of Larimer County. Growth was a big issue. So, and I spent about uh, eight years there. I loved it, um, and I and I, uh, you know, we loved the city. My kids were born there, and uh, great great park system, great trail system, great place to live. 
but uh i i always knew eventually i wanted to get back to denver and uh and it had always been my dream to work at either the post or the rocky and uh 1997 i got hired at the rocky mountain news uh to cover the night cop shift initially um and i was there from uh from 97 until the day it closed in 2009 it occurs to me that you've spent a lot of time in the criminal justice system that's why you're such a great reporter on it would you say that's your wheelhouse yes i would i would um i think that um I, I don't really know what attracted me to it, but I think that um, that uh, there are so many fascinating stories that unfold in courtrooms and and so many, I mean, obviously a lot of tragic stories, but also uh, tragic stories with valuable life lessons and just, uh, you know, you meet, you meet uh, so many interesting people and... Uh, I've just always been really interested in that, really interested in, um, you know, in shining the light on things that I think people in the community should know about. And a lot of them have to do with the criminal justice system, both things that could be improved and individual cases that, that you know, serve as lessons for the greater, uh, you know, for the greater community. Right. It all depends on who's telling the story. And you are right. one of those storytellers. You can't get the valuable life lessons if you don't get the correct history. And history is always um, being evaluated. And that's what I think. I know you a little bit, Kevin, watched your career. I know you're the president of the Denver Press Club, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. But I think that one word matters a lot to you. Tell me if it's true, that word being history. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that uh, it's really easy for people, whether you're talking about sports or or whatever's happening, to think that, that this thing that's happening is new or, or nothing like this has ever happened before. And I think that the perspective of history and in a community or in a sport, I think it's really important. I mean, you know, I'm a football fan and, and, you know, obviously there are a lot of great quarterbacks out there and the argument about who's the best of all time. And it, I sort of smile to myself when Johnny Unitas's name doesn't come up because I think if Johnny Unitas played today under these rules, he would be right at the top of the list still, <laughs> you know, Right. He played in a different era, a different time when most games were not on television. Most people didn't see him. His stats don't look that impressive compared to today's players. He played in a shorter season. You know all this. And, um, you know, you could say the same thing about basketball, baseball, any sport. No, you know, no, so. I think that's right. And I think part of our image, baby boomers like you and me and Unitas and Namath were great. But they went, oh, yeah. they went out with a whimper. Namath with the Rams, United with the Chargers, as I recall. And, yep. and Montana even did that little Elway going out on top, Manning going out on top. That doesn't happen that often, it right? It doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah, I was just talking to somebody the other day about how many people don't really get to write the last chapter they, the way they'd like to write it, you know? Yes. Absolutely. And then a lot of us depend on how you write it up. And uh, you had an amazing career at the Rocky Mountain News and just tying it into history and 
When it comes to sports, you know I have to ask you about Aaron Hernandez, the case you covered. Well, why don't yeah. let's just talk about that for a second? Because you know we all see Rob Gronkowski doing every other commercial for even yeah. USAA, even though he wasn't in the military, and he's such a likable guy. But people forget that there was another tight end, a TB, Tim Tebow friend, who was every bit as good as Gronk, maybe better, bigger, stronger, faster. Just tell that story and how you got involved before we return yeah. to Colorado. Yeah, sure. Um, just quickly, you know, the Rocky closed. I went to Denver Post for a few years, and then I went over to uh, iNews at Rocky Mountain PBS for a year, and then I got talked into uh, becoming a television reporter, and I went to work for Fox Sports as a national investigative reporter, and one of my key assignments was covering Aaron Hernandez. I was hired um, right after he was arrested in the murder of a man named Odin Lloyd, and my first my first uh, couple of days at Fox Sports, I traveled to New England and was at his uh, his arraignment uh, the day that he was formally charged. And um, I, I was assigned to cover him, uh, you know, well, whatever was happening. So over the next couple of years, I made about, I think, 25 trips to Massachusetts. He ultimately was implicated in a double murder uh, and was charged in that case up in Boston. And so I was covering both of those cases. And then I lived in, uh, I lived in New England for about four months in 2015 and covered uh, his first murder trial, Gavel to Gavel, that uh, was held at a courthouse in Fall am, River. Am I right is, about his talent level? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was a, he was a, you know, he was an, an undefendable tight end, you know. He's one of those ones that, doesn't really matter what you come up with the defense. He's going to, he, he, he would catch the ball and score and, uh, you know, just an amazing athlete. Well, you covered it so well. There have been books written, movies made. Is there one you would recommend? You know, um, I saw a long documentary. Uh, and I can't remember what I watched so much stuff on streaming. I can't remember which one it was. Um, that, uh, you know, it, it, it really delved a lot into his personality and his private life. That was pretty interesting. A lot of that stuff was sort of known during the trial. A lot of, uh, a lot of us that, you know, there was a core group of us that were there every day. Uh, we were aware of some of that stuff, but it didn't really rise to the level of stuff we reported on because it didn't really fit into what we were covering, which was this murder case. And, and, um, you know, that's the longest trial I've ever covered. It started, I think, uh, uh, my recollection is that uh, jury jury selection began on January 9th and the guilty verdict came on April 15th. Wow. Uh, so, so about, you know, almost three and a half months. And were uh, you able to be in the courtroom every day or did you have to use yeah. overflow rooms? We had an overflow room, but um, I'm one of those people that wants to be in the courtroom mm -hmm. um, because the, uh, the one of the judge's orders was that uh, the camera's off when the jury is not in the room and the camera's off whenever there's a bench conference. And, you know, you can sure. make so many observations about body language. And, you know, oftentimes the day would start with the attorneys taking up a legal issue before the jury was brought in. And none of that was broadcast to the overflow room. So... I, um, 
they, they, they set aside 20 seats for the media and it was first come first serve. And I, I made darn sure that I was there plenty early every day. In fact, the first, the day of, the, of opening statements, you know, there was like five of us that all got there at like five o'clock in the morning. It was one of those bitterly cold New England mornings. And I like you in that fight. You're about <laughs> six, six with big, strong elbows. Did you elbow anybody? I didn't have to. I didn't have to. Yeah, but they it knew w- they it all worked could. out. Right. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. So, but, so but, yeah, it, it, it's amazing what you've seen in the criminal justice system. And, and he died in custody. I just went to New York to watch the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. I don't know if you realize it, a couple of Colorado lawyers defending her. And, I, I was aware of that, yeah. And so I went, I got in the courtroom just for a tiny moment to talk to Jeff Paliuka, who I knew. And then I went to the overflow rooms, but... We heard the discussions between court and counsel with the jury gone, and it was fascinating. And the circumstances of that trial and uh, the journalists from around the world, because there's a lot of talk that, oh, everything's being hushed up. Uh, Nobody can report on this case. And uh, I went there to show, and I talk about it on my podcast, You Can. I had Barry Levine on. He's written the book, The Spider. Anyway, that's my big criminal court experience. And don't you think federal court should get with it and allow their proceedings to be televised? Yes. Yes. And I think they should have a process for even even if not televised camera in the courtroom process like we have in Colorado, where people like me can file a petition with the court asking to have a camera in there and the prosecution and the defense get to file uh you know, a, a brief on whether they think that's a good idea or a bad idea. And the judge is allowed to, to make a ruling. And, you know, I've had some cases where judges have said uh, that they feared the camera would interfere with the tri- trial or whatever I was covering. And I've had other cases where they've allowed the camera, but the, but the federal courts don't even have a process for that now. It's just, um, you know, you have to leave your cell phone in your car when you go in the federal court. Right. Because uh, it's got a camera in it. Right. And um, it seems like that's uh, uh, that's something I would like to see changed. I'd like to see it changed, too. And I think, especially as we confront yet another wave of this never-ending pandemic, court proceedings are taking place via camera. And even yeah. some trials. Believe me, I've watched a lot of them. <laughs> it's amazing what you can watch, right? Yeah, yep. And you you don't have to drive anywhere. It's a new world, and everybody, whether we like it or not, we're all being filmed all the time, and occasionally by Nine News. Yep. Um, This is true. And, you know, getting back to Aaron Hernandez for just a second. So this this murder that I covered, uh, the murder of Odin Lloyd, Lloyd, happened in the summer of 2013. And I was blown away by the video that was unearthed in that investigation now eight years ago they had they had video of aaron hernandez leaving his house with his two co-defendants to go pick up odin lloyd they had video from a ring doorbell across the street from odin's lloyd's house of aaron hernandez picking him up they had video from the massachusetts turnpike of him driving they had video from a toll booth that he drove through without paying. They had video of him driving into the industrial park where the murder happened and video of him driving out of it and then video of him driving 
back, arriving back at his house from his own home security system. And it was, you put all that together and it just, the jury got to just watch in on a big screen in the courtroom, the sequence of events. It was, it was unbelievable. It really was. Talk about unbelievable. I'm going to give you the story of the century. And you talk about completely revealing video, all recorded in binders. I watched it introduced into evidence. The FBI agent McGuire said, I led the search at Jeffrey Epstein's and we found these binders full of discs and Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine what's on that? That guy recorded everything in all of his mansions. Uh, Talk about everything being filmed. That would be a story if somebody called Kevin Vaughn and said, hey, I've got a binder for you. And, And rumor is that copies were made and that Putin has had it. A Palm Beach sheriff disappeared, now lives in Moscow. It's all interconnected, but we, we, we bring up these uh, videos, and you could say, well, why does that case matter? And uh, it, it touches on two of our last three presidents. Bill Clinton was pals with Jeff Epstein, and so was Donald Trump. So I I think it's a big story with a little bit of a Colorado connection, but you've been part of so many big stories like Aaron Hernandez. Just in the end, remind people how he died, and was it by his own hands? Uh, yeah, he, um, he, uh, hung himself in prison. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it was, uh, I mean, the whole thing was so sad that you had this person who had immense talent and, um, a side of him that, that emerged, has emerged over time. That was really, uh, you know, he was, uh, really caring to a lot of people. And then you had this other side of him. He was convicted of the murder of Bud Lloyd. He was actually acquitted of the double murder in that he was tried for in Boston after the trial that I covered. Um, but, you know, he was sentenced to life in prison, no possibility of parole. And he, um, he uh, ended his own life there in a, in a prison, not all that far from, from Gillette Field, where he played for the Patriots. What a sad story. Yes. And you've been following the Hammer murder that affected our community. And if you're yep. an old-timer like us, you remember it when that family in Bennett got slaughtered in their home by a hammer. Yep. I prosecuted some hammer attacks in Colorado, uh, Denver specifically, in Capitol Hill. But there's nothing more... I, I don't know, just the concept of somebody swinging a hammer into somebody's head, uh, it, it stays with you, and you don't want to think about it, especially in the context of a home invasion, but it really did happen, and it was unsolved for a long time, but thanks to Kevin Vaughn and some great law enforcers, we know who did it now, don't we? We do. Um, we know that uh, a guy named Alex Ewing was convicted in uh early August of the 1984 murders of the, uh, of three members of the Bennett family. And, um, we know he's facing a trial that's now scheduled, uh, in April in a murder that occurred a week before that out in Lakewood of a woman named Patricia Smith. Well, I just and, salute um, you for following that case because it's important and some family members are still around. Oh yeah, absolutely. 
Well, Nine News takes the lead on all of this, and I have you on at a time when you just covered a big case of mind. And I, I just think that uh, in all the cases we're talking about, what if there was a call three decades later, hey, in the Hammer trials, something was wrong because a piece of evidence did this or that. I got that kind of call from you. Hey, Craig, I don't know if you've heard about this, and I had not. Tell everybody this story from your perspective. It involves the July 23, 1993 murder of Tom Holler right across uh, Corona from the Capitol Hill King Supers. He was parking his Honda at the Shanna Marie. His beautiful wife of the year, Christina, was getting out of the car. They'd gone to a Rockies game that night. They went to Rock Island for a fashion show. They owned a store called the Emmy Jimmy in Capitol Hill, and they were just living a great Denver life. But two gang members had walked across King Super's parking lot, saw this beautiful woman, decided to take her. Tom resisted. He got shot dead right on the sidewalk, and they took off in the holler vehicle with Christina, who was found naked and nearly dead at 21st and Lafayette in Park Hill hours later. It captivated the city back then. I was uh, assigned as prosecutor through great police work, circumstantial evidence, eyewitness testimony, and, as I recall, uh, a statement by Mool Verma, just played on Nine News, that a hair match was probable. These guys were convicted and sentenced to life plus 200 years. When I say these guys... Shane Davis and Stephen Harrington. That's what I remember about the case. Uh, they appealed. It was denied. They went to prison. And then I get a call from Kevin Bond. Pick it up from there, Kevin. Yeah, so um, there's a there's a there's uh, an Innocence Project group working at the University of Colorado uh, Law School, the Corey Wise Innocence Project. And they, of course, um, you know, these various Innocence Project efforts around the country have focused heavily on making sure that uh, convictions from the past were proper, were legitimate, that the evidence was proper and that the right people are behind bars and so forth. And um, one of the things that they've really dug into is this practice that basically ended about 20 years ago known as hair microscopy. It was started by the FBI. It was done for decades but the idea was that a, that somebody with the proper training could look at two hairs under a microscope and look at um, distinctive characteristics on them and make a determination, you know, uh, likely, unlikely, probable, you know, sort of a uh, uh, an educated opinion about whether hair A from a crime scene matched hair B from a particular suspect, and so. Um, the problem with that technology is that uh, that was in practice for all these years is that DNA has shown that a lot of, in a lot of those cases the hair examiners were wrong, and in particular the FBI started a review uh, a few years ago and looked at a whole bunch of cases and and came to the conclusion that hair examiners made statements in court that could not be supported by science in about 90% of the cases. And they encourage people around the country to review old cases that where convictions uh, occurred that in some way involved hair microscopy. 
And um, and who was he, who was the FBI director who issued it was, that order? It was two thousand fifteen. Yeah, it was James Comey. I've heard of um, him, and do you know what his yeah. daughter is doing right now? I don't. She's prosecuting Ghislaine Maxwell in the oh, New York okay. courtroom. I watched her in action. Go back to this story. 2015, yeah, okay. Jim Comey says, hey, our FBI process has some flaws. Maybe we overstated results. Take a right. look at it, right? And, and, and not, only, not only us, but we trained lots of hair examiners that are working for other agencies around the country. And so um, part of part of the outfall from that was that the Corey Wise Innocence Project put together a list of people whose sentences are still being served, who were uh, convicted in cases, uh, uh, basically most of them first-degree murder cases, a few second-degree murder cases, and some uh, very aggravated sexual assaults uh, that were convicted between 1976 and 1995, where there was hair evidence work done by the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. And so they, the Innocence Project came with this list. They uh, asked the CBI to do a review of its files and figure out which of these cases involved hair microscopy. And they ultimately came up with uh, 57 cases that involved 51 de- defendants uh, from that 20-year period, 76 to 95, where hair microscopy was uh, involved in some way. So uh, they and they announced this a few weeks ago that they were going to now review these cases and see if any of them, you know, should be should get a fuller reexamination. And and I should say the reason that they know now that hair microscopy was a flawed technique is that, you know, in the, in the early two thousands, they scientists developed the ability to extract DNA from hair. So you could take a hair from a crime scene and get a DNA profile from it. And if you had a suspect, you could take a hair from the suspect and get a DNA profile and you could tell if they were the same profile. And so beginning this, this review that happened with the FBI came about after some cases where, People had gone back to old cases. The hair still existed in the evidence vault. They had them DNA tested, and they found out, whoa, the hair examiner testified in court. There's a high probability this came from the same person, but the DNA shows that they don't. So um, so the idea here was to do the same thing here in Colorado with these cases. So ne- neither the Innocence Project nor the CBI would make available to me the list of people whose cases were going to be reviewed but um you know i've been doing this for a little while and i've got some sources and i got my hands on a copy of the list and it basically falls into three categories of people there are people for whom there was a positive hair comparison done and that was the only that was considered the only forensic piece of evidence in the case then there are people where there was a positive hair uh, analysis done, you know, positive hair comparison testified to in court, but there was also other forensic evidence. And then there's a group of people where there was hair analysis done, but there wasn't a, a match made. Um, and they're going to look at those as well to see, um, you know, to try to evaluate whether 
that hair evidence might implicate somebody else, right? Right. Um, but, 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 like but, let me stop you for one second because you're talking about the phrase match made. And thanks to your nine news story, which uh, was aired on my birthday, uh, December 16th, um, I got to watch myself when I was a lot younger, which was cool, but I watched Mool Verma say, highly probable, and we stayed right, away right. from saying that a match was made. But right. it's like if a, if a suspect has long blonde hair and you find long blonde hair at the crime scene, at the time you could identify, I think, the race, of course, the true color, maybe even gender. And so then you could boil down those circumstances. And to me, it's not surprising that some of the... Uh, sophisticated DNA might say, okay, it was a different blonde person. But still, should that evidence be admitted, especially if all you said was probable as opposed to a match made? Yeah. Well, so, and the the thing I would point out is it's absolutely, you're absolutely right in the, in the Haller case, in the, in the trial of, of Shane Davis and Steve Harrington, uh, the CBI hair examiner used that phraseology, but the, the FBI's review of it, the work of its hair examiner, their hair examiners found that 26 of the 28 of them overstated mm-hmm. what what they knew in court and used words like match. Um, uh, and so, and thank God, so anyway, Mul Verma did not, and that's why I'm not too worried about all of this. Sorry, yeah. Innocence Project, but Mul Verma did it right. And I think he's still alive. I don't know if you got a hold of him, but I talked to Mitch Morrissey, and he told me, don't worry, Craig, because uh, Moore was very conservative in the way he uh, testified. Right. And so what's so, so I, I decided when, when I got the list, you know, I've been doing, as we've established, I've been, I've been around for a little while doing this. I focused primarily on the group of people where there was positive hair match and, and and Shane Davis's name jumped out at me because I remembered the Holler case. I was in, uh, you know, I was living in Fort Collins at the time, but I was, as I said, a news junkie. And um, so I was uh, well aware of that case. And, and I noted in the story a couple of other cases that I thought would people would remember, you know, the murder of a state trooper named um, Lyle Woolers and a murder committed by a guy named Kenyon Tollerton who had gone to prison for one murder, had been um, paroled, and then had um, been, uh, you know, implicated in another murder, right. murder of a 14-year-old girl, uh, Sissy Foster, and had pleaded guilty in that case. So, um, so you know, now what's going to happen is, uh, uh, well, let me back up. As, I, as you noted, I called you and said, hey, did you know that this case that you prosecuted have been looking at and we did a we did a nice interview over there at your office and and um we are the story as you said on the 16th of december and um you know the next step that's going to happen is first of all the list is going to get re-examined by cbi and the innocence project because one one thing that's not clear is why shane davis is having his case reviewed but steve harrington is not when in fact the testimony about hair evidence in this case related to to Steve Harrington and not to Shane Davis. Um, so it seems like uh, the it seems to me 
to be an interesting question, legitimate question that we haven't been able to get an answer to as to why uh, Davis's case is being examined, Harrington's is not, when, as you well know, it was one trial, all the same witnesses, all the same evidence, one jury. I mean, they sat at the same table, the same defense table uh, in the courtroom. Um, so anyway, the the next step is they're going to make sure the, the list is who they want, who they properly should look at. And then they are going to pull all of the trial transcripts and so forth and make some evaluations. And the Innocence Project's plan is if they find a case where they think there is a potential of factual innocence, they're going to seek DNA testing. The hope would be, of course, that the hair evidence is still been preserved properly and is available for DNA testing, and they will look at that. And as we know, that can cut both ways, right? Um, I, I can actually give you an example in the Hammer case. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I traveled to uh, uh, Nevada and Arizona uh, in 2020 before the pandemic and ended up interviewing a bunch of people that had encountered Alex Ewing down there, but also spent some time going through the court files. And one of the interesting things is that an innocence project in, uh, in Nevada had requested some DNA testing in an attack down there that he was convicted of. And uh, they never came back and said, you've got the wrong guy. Right. So pretty uh, good we, indicator. We have to, uh, we you got the right indi- guy. Yeah. That they got the right guy in that DNA testing which wasn't available back in the early eighties when that crime happened, the DNA testing done, you know, in the last 10 or 12 years, in fact, confirmed it. And that same thing may could happen here in some of these cases. In fact, uh, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if in a number of these cases, if there is DNA testing pursued and it's not going to be pursued in all of them, because I think part of their burden will be what, uh, what is all the evidence? And if you have, the hair and a number of other different kinds of evidence, whether it's eyewitness testimony or fingerprints or whatever, uh, I think they will close the book of that and move on. If there's one where it's like, you know, we've got some real problems in this case, we're going to ask for a DNA test. Um, my guess is in some of those cases, at least in some of those cases, the DNA is going to confirm uh, that, the, that the hair matches. And if it shows that it doesn't, then the question will be, is this person entitled to a new trial? Is this person entitled to uh, some other kind of relief, whether it's, you know, a commutation of the sentence or, you know, who knows that. And all that's going to play out. And as you know, the wheels of justice do turn slowly. And and I expect this is going to play out over the next two to three years before we're going to have a clear answer on whether any of these 51 people will have a conviction overturned or have their sentence shortened or anything like that. But something happens really fast. It it stirs up anxiety, right? And when I got your call, it made me anxious. I wanted to learn more. I talked to smart people like Mitch Morrissey, but I needed to call the people who had really affected. And that was Christina Holler and uh, Nedra Downing, Tom's mother, Uh who's still alive, because I don't Uh want them to hear about it in the media. And... uh, Fortunately, I was able to, I got Carol Malaysia involved. She's a great victim advocate, previous guest uh, on my show. She uh, helped me through the process, and we put the old team back together. And it was great because they were such wonderful people, but 
I bet you understand, Kevin, that when you aired that story last night, there are 50 violent crimes with the ripple effects through the community. And did it occur to you that a lot of people watched that and said, oh my, I remember hair evidence in the trial of the murder of my loved one. And is this going to be one of those cases? This is going to stir things up, right? A lot of anxiety on the part of people uh, affected by violent crime. I think it will. And, and um, one of the reasons we, have, we haven't published the full list is because we we don't know what what the effort has been to reach out to victims. But what I do know is that uh, Christina Haller and Andrew Downing didn't know anything about this. And I know in the other two cases we included in the story, uh, the family of Lyle Wollers didn't know anything about this, and neither did the family of Sissy Foster. I know I let them know about this. And so, um, you know, at some point I think uh, we will uh, – you know, we're, we're we're taking a deeper dive on the list. There's a lot of names on it, frankly, that I I don't recognize the names, and and they're from the 70s and 80s before it's really even uh, easy to find news coverage, right? Um, you know, from from about 1990 on, I can generally find at least newspaper stories, if not TV uh, stories about stuff. But but in the 70s and 80s. You're talking about microfilm, <laughs> you know. Um, do you know so, what? Do you know what happened? And, and first of all, your report was good. I, I had oh, no idea you. you had that uh, audio and video. Your report starts with me whispering to Christina Holler, and somehow uh -huh. I guess I had a mic on, or she had a mic near her. I think she yeah. was maybe sitting there to answer questions of the press, and I, I leaned over and I encouraged her. This was after the verdict. And your report starts with me whispering, and it ends with me whispering. I've never had a report like that before. Well, both of those both of those clips appeared on our air back at the time they happened. It was a whirlwind for me. Yeah, yeah, I bet it was. And then uh, you put so, in your so, story. Yeah. I, I mean, thank you for embedding a lot of Nine News coverage inside your broader story, well-written, as you would expect by Kevin Vaughn. Well, it was, um, you know, it was interesting. And, and I mean, obviously, uh, Craig, I've, uh, I've written stories about people you've represented. I've seen you in court. And we've obviously talked many, many times over the years. It was interesting to go back and see you working in a courtroom uh, as a prosecutor, because I think, um, you know, you had already left the DA's office uh, when I got to town. So, uh, you know, that was interesting. And, uh, Interesting to see, I mean, you know, interesting to see our reports from back then and and to kind of remember remember them from, you know, when I was watching it from afar. Apropos know. of our prior discussion, there were cameras in the courtroom. Court TV covered it 24-7. Uh, they sent yes. a young reporter named Dan Abrams out, and I think you heard some video of him as well. Yep. And we had to get used to cameras in the courtroom, and that was back when court TV was really big. It's kind of getting big again with the mainstream cable uh, televising trials in, in great uh, amounts. Rittenhouse, now this Minnesota officer, uh, Potter on trial. Uh, there's nothing more dramatic than a good courtroom trial, and back then— when I was waiting for the verdict and the jury was out for a while, I was just wandering around the mall and strangers were coming up to me saying, 
do you have a verdict? And it's like, no, well, that's why I'm here. I'm just, it's <laughs> like I, I had never really seen strangers kind of hanging on a verdict, but it was dramatic and very memorable for me. And it kind of stuns me to see uh, me back in the day, 1994, and, and to have that footage. But that's another cool thing about cameras in the courtroom you don't have to guess about history. It's right there. You don't have to guess what Mul Verma said. You can watch it on Nine News. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, I, I hope if you if you visited our website, I think we have uh, uh, six or seven of our stories from back then uh, embedded in, in our coverage of the case, beginning with the day of the murder and following all the way up through the sentencing, the story about the sentencing. And if and, I recall, uh, Kim Christensen. Uh, yep. And, yep. And you know what happened? It was the summer of violence, and the case was not solved for a week. I was a chief deputy, kind of hoping that I could be a part of this case. And I remember, I think it was, uh, I think it might have been Ken Hamlin doing talk radio, and it might have been on KNUS, but they set up at the King Supers in Capitol Hill and broadcast from there. And I remember riding my bike around, listening probably on a transistor and just thinking about it and contemplating what had happened to Tom Holler. And before we go any further on this, Tom Holler lost his life. And I never met him, but I met so many people who loved him, including his mother. And what she said in sentencing to Davis and Harrington, looking them in the eye and saying, you know what, if you would have met my son, you would have liked him. And he would have helped you if he had problems. But instead, you know, you badass Crips and Harrington, you even saw that sound. I don't know if you heard it when he declared his allegiance to the end. That guy yeah. was scary. You've been in a lot of courtrooms, but he was a little different, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, we aired that footage back then, and we have it on our website now. Um, a lot of it's beeped out, obviously, because he... Um, you know, was uh, he was saying words not appropriate for television, I guess is the way to say it. It wasn't um, just the words. If looks could kill, I would be dead. Because <laughs> that yeah. guy stared at me, and the jury saw it and did him no favors. Yeah, yeah. But, um, uh, I know I know other people said that they were, you know, stared down the entire time. And, and you know, I, I give, uh, I give our, uh, uh, our folks back then credit because I looked through all of, a lot of our coverage and there were people who clearly would have been in danger from their testimony and we didn't show them on TV or give their names. You know, in some cases we heard their voices and obviously the, the suspects knew who they were because they were sitting in the courtroom, but other people didn't know who they were. And um, I know that jurors that spoke afterwards were concerned about their safety and ask that their names not be used. And, you know, so it was, uh, it was a spectacle, but yeah, we do have that. We do have that clip, uh, online where he, uh, declares his allegiance to the gang, you know, I know. And, and I know media always struggles over that. Do you air that? Do you want to even say the names of street gangs? But, right. Right. Uh, it, it's a tough one. And, and let me tell you where I struggle. First of all, my law school alma mater is the University of Colorado School of Law, which has created this innocence project. 
I will tell you this, that shortly after the verdict in the Holler case, O.J. Simpson uh, killed Nicole and Ron. And, and I say he did it even though he was acquitted because I said it to him personally when I had him on the air. And he said, well, I, I told him I thought I could have convicted him. And he said, well, we won't know that, Silverman, because you weren't the prosecutor. And I said, well, true enough, O.J. And then he went on to commit other crimes in Nevada. But my, my point is this that O.J., a guilty man, was acquitted at a trial that I thought had overwhelming circumstantial evidence and forensic evidence. And two of his attorneys were Barry Shack and Peter Newfield, also Alan Dershowitz, who comes up in the Ghislaine Maxwell thing. But let's stay with Newfield and Barry Shack. Uh, what about that, Mr. Fung fame? And I followed that trial closely, being in the business and I thought O.J. Simpson got away with murder with help from Barry Shack and Peter Newfield, who totally confused the jury with DNA, this and that. And the bottom line, these two guys took their money and they started the Innocence Project, which I think has done some good things, but I can't get over their origin story. Should I grow up or is that fair? <laughs> well, this is what I would say, you know, um, I my guess is that the OJ trial was for most people their introduction to DNA evidence. Um, I'm aware of uh, crimes going back as far as 1989 in Colorado where there were DNA profiles developed, but my guess is the average person the first time they really saw DNA playing out in a courtroom was in the OJ trial. And in, and as you recall in those days. Um, you know, there was a lot of of worry about it on, you know, how good is the technology? What what do these numbers mean? And and uh, you know, I talked to Phil Turner, who I think you probably know know yes. uh, for this story as well. And Phil was saying that, like, you know, in the early days, defense attorneys were really worried about DNA and and came to view it as their friend because you know, came viewed as their friend in cases where they thought they had a truly innocent person um, that they were representing. And, and you know, I think our, our, our feelings as a country have come a long way about it. I mean, I think, first of all, the technology has gotten better and better and better. And, and there are some things you just can't, you, you right, can't here's explain your away. Here's your Colorado trivia question. What was Colorado's first DNA case at a criminal trial? Um, and you can call yeah, Mitch Morrissey to verify this. It was 1991 in Pitkin County when David Olivas and I went to prosecute, again, Quentin Wortham, the Capitol Hill rapist, right. with newfangled technology called DNA, which proved that he had raped yet another woman in Capitol Hill. And he got an additional 24 years, and we got our first uh, DNA conviction in Colorado. So... I knew Good how to, to say deoxyribonucleic acid, and you could sound pretty smart saying it. And there were two companies that did it back then in 91, Life Codes and Cellmark. And it was just a couple years later that DNA came to the public through OJ. And you may say, well, Craig, if you convicted the Holler guys with just uh, micro, my, microscopic testimony um, in 1994, why didn't you use DNA? Because DNA for hair didn't come along 
for another few years. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, I think of the evolution of DNA as this, like in the beginning, you needed a sizable quantity of something that you could see with the naked eye, whether it was a drop of blood or semen or and saliva. semen on a bedspread. Yeah, to get DNA. And then it it evolved and, and eventually you could get it from smaller and smaller samples of right. those things. And eventually they figured out how to get it from hair, but first they could only get it from hair roots. Eventually they could get it from the entire hair. And it's progressed to the point now where they can develop a DNA profile from three to five human cells that are so small you can't even see them under the microscope. I mean, they will they will take a piece of uh, clothing, for example, on, on a crime victim, and they will swab that, and then they will test the swab, and that swab will have picked up enough cells that um, that they can uh, you know get a profile from it, and and it's all a matter of where the DNA comes from and and what it what story it tells you. If, uh, you know, if they came and, and did a test in that conference room where we did the interview with you a couple weeks ago, that later that afternoon, they would have found my DNA there. They would have found my photojournalist DNA there. They would have found yours. They would have found everybody else had been in that room recently there because we touch stuff and we breathe and, and so forth. And, and that wouldn't be very valuable to figure out what happening happened there because it just said that we were in there, right? Right. But then if you have a sexual assault victim, particularly if you have a child sexual assault victim, um, DNA, DNA that comes from semen um, is incredibly powerful evidence. And it's not, you know, if you talk about a child sexual assault victim, it's not explainable. You might argue if it's an adult sexual assault victim, the person whose DNA it is might argue that, well, that's the result of a consensual encounter, right? Right. But, but when you're talking about a small child, that's out the window, and that's really not explainable any way other than that person committed that crime. And, or or um, it's, it might be an artifice or uh, something. That, uh, I'm thinking about Jean Benet right now, and the question is, is DNA right. the, the clue, or is it an anomaly and it came in a package, something like that? So. Well, you may remember the you may remember the story that Charlie Brennan and I did a few years ago about the fact that, that we 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 obtained the actual DNA test results and took them to three experts and three independent experts not working with with each other and all of them analyzed it and came up with the same conclusion that that was a DNA mixture from three people. And so it's not a single source profile that is ever going to yield uh, the identity of a single human being. It's possible the killer's DNA is mixed in there somehow, but the profile that they developed from uh, from the underwear in that case, you know, they, the the experts told us that that's that's not a profile of a single person. That's a mixture of three people's. Uh, You've DNA. been part of so many big stories, Charlie Brennan too. Nobody covered that case better than Charlie Brennan and. The book Perfect Murder, Perfect Town. We know he wrote most of that, yep. right? Yeah. That was a good book. I recommend it for people who want to learn about Bonnet. I recommend anything by Kevin Vaughn. Uh, have you had fallout from this story? Did uh, How does it work at Nine News, uh, Colorado's news leader, 
Uh, were they happy with the story? Or oh yeah, it? yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, um, I, I think people here were happy with the story. I mean, we. Um, I mean, this is an important issue, right? We we nobody should want somebody that didn't commit a crime to be in prison for it, even if they're a bad person, right? Um, you know, I used to. I remember here early in my career, I'd hear occasionally people say, "Well." You know, maybe he didn't do this one, but he's done so many other bad things. What does it really matter? Well, it, it does matter because, you know, we we don't want innocent people in in jail. And so, uh, I, I look at this story and at this effort as something that's going to uh, that I think has the potential to strengthen confidence in the criminal justice system. And um, you know, and I think, uh, you know, if you look at the case of Michael Morton in Texas, which I don't know how familiar you, you might be with that. No, tell but me. He was, he, was, he was convicted in the mid-1980s of murdering his wife. And what he said was that uh, his wife was still in bed asleep. He had gone to work and he was at work when the police came and told him that uh, his wife was murdered. She was savagely beaten to death in her bed. And um, the only person home at the time was there small child who I think was about three. He was convicted. The theory of the prosecution was that he was uh, enraged with her because she wouldn't have sex with him the night before and that he killed her. And he spent um, more than 25 years in prison in Texas. At one point, he was offered uh, clemency if he would sign a statement saying that he was guilty, and he refused to do that. He kept insisting that he was not guilty and he his attorneys began uh at some point fighting for dna testing on a bloody bandana that was found in the field behind his house and um you know it was a long drawn out legal fight but eventually they won that right and they had the bandana tested and it was a smoking gun the blood on it was matched to blood left at the scene of another very similar homicide woman beaten to death in her home that happened after Michael Morton was incarcerated. So they knew he could not have committed this other crime. Hmm. And they um, quickly uh, identified the suspect uh, who has since been convicted of killing his wife. And and in the midst of all of this, it turned out that the prosecutors had withheld evidence from the defense, including uh, an interview with the couple's little boy who told them that it was not his daddy who did it, that it was a monster. And he described him as having long hair and a beard and all this stuff. And none of that was turned over to the defense at the time. Whoa, the when did this happen? Yeah, this happened in the 80s. And I know, but when, when did these revelations come on? Uh, 2012 or 13, I'll send you an article. And what it. happened to the prosecutors? They should be prosecuted. Uh, well, he was a judge, so um, he, he was prosecuted. I think he got a very short jail sentence on the order of 25 days or something. I, I'm probably wrong about the exact number, right. but he got a very small uh, jail sentence. And, and the thing that was, I, I think most maddening about it was that the, the prosecutors dragged out the fight over getting the DNA test done on this bandana for years. 
And it turned out that an innocent man was sitting in prison for all those years. Isn't that an object lesson? You learn as a prosecutor, you're part of the executive branch. And there's a lot of power being in the executive branch. And if you abuse it, terrible things can happen. You've got to lay the whole case on the table. Let the other side see it. It's outrageous to keep back an interview with the kid. You can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. And And, um, you know, there were, there were, there were other issues as well. I mean, that, that prosecutor, um, like I said, went on to be a judge and, um, and, uh, you know, it sounded I mean, I like the think, master's trial up in Fort Collins. In yeah. And, I mean, and in this case, it's a tragedy because the, the man's estranged from his son because the son was raised by the, by his wife's family mm-hmm. and he grew up believing oh his father had killed his mother Ugh. And so imagine trying to undo that after 25 oh, no. years. You can't. It's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. I'll email you Pamela Colliff's amazing two-part report on this case, and uh, I think it'll it'll make you crazy. Well, we'll end it uh, kind of right there because you talk about childhood trauma. Nothing worse. I loved prosecuting people who hurt children. It took a toll on me, but there's no more innocent victim and. Colorado has new law upcoming with a three-year window for people who were abused systemically, maybe by the Boy Scouts, U.S. Olympics, uh, various Priest. religious denominations. Right. It's, there's a window, and it goes back to January 1, 1960. So a lot of baby boomers can say, I've been sitting on this, and the question will come up, well, what's the evidence? And I would say, it's different in every case. Maybe there will be sure. some DNA, doubtful, but maybe. And there are also statements that get made, blood. Who knows? And uh, are you aware of that window opening? Yes, January I am. one, and that's really going to be something for people who care about victims. And I do, and I know you do too. When when you talk about this, and, and you read about prosecutorial misconduct, how prevalent is it? How do you think? Our criminal justice system is doing right now. Uh, here, here's what I think, Craig. I think the vast majority of people in the system are earnest and honest and hardworking. And you know that doesn't mean they don't occasionally make mistakes, but I don't think they're mistakes of malice. But I also think that um, you know that we we have problems, and I think that um, I, I mean I certainly feel like I have seen the adversarial relationship become really about winning, right? For both sides, right? Become more, become more about winning than about this elusive idea of justice and seeking justice and seeking truth, right? That's what I think the ultimate goal is truth about what happened here. And, you know, the question about what we do about anything is a different question, but, um, but I've seen a few cases over the years where people didn't turn stuff over and, and it was, and it's no-brainer stuff. It's not like it was a close call in this Michael Morton case, right? Right. You had you had the, this interview with the son. I, I think actually, now I think about this more. I think the it was an interview with the grandmother who said these are all the things the boy told me. And um, there's no question that should be turned over. There's of not course. a there's not a first year law student in America that wouldn't say, oh yeah, that's Brady material, right? Except um, maybe at a Texas law school where they have a great one. But, you know, when I debated the death penalty, and I did it a lot, having secured one in Denver, 
they would bring up Texas things. I said, I'm not here to debate Texas because Texas is just different than Colorado. And in my mind, a worse criminal justice system, much worse with the elected judges and public defenders who are poorly paid, sleeping lawyers at death penalty trials. I can't defend Texas. I don't even try because I'm not that knowledgeable about it. But I always thought Colorado was a little better than that. But then the Masters case and, you know, we, we've got our problems here, too. And nobody pays attention to it more than you, Kevin Bond. You are incredible. And this might be a segue to a cause near and dear to my heart, but even more near and dear to you, the Denver Press Club. Why is it important and why have you taken such a leadership role? Well, it's important because for for a lot of reasons. I mean, the most tangible way it's important is that we financially support up-and-coming journalists. I mean, we we, uh, give out um, scholarships to eight uh, journalism students every year and help them further their studies and and get their degrees. And, um, you know, our, our goal, our mission is to foster... Uh, you know, a stronger community through ethical journalism and, and community engagement. And so um, I think it's important for those ideals, just as it's important for the actual reality that the tangible, the most tangible thing we do is provide these scholarships annually to students from eight Colorado colleges and universities. And um, I just think uh, it's a unique uh, organization and we have lots of events. We were obviously really hamstrung over the last year and a half by the pandemic. We were closed completely for about nine months. We um, have limited capacity. We still have limited operating hours. Um, we've instituted, uh, before the mayor made it mandatory, we instituted a vaccine mandate for anybody entering the building. Um, but I just think that um, I believe in, I, I believe that Good journalism, ethical journalism, is a force for good in our community and in our society and in our culture. And I think that the Denver Press Club plays a role in that. And whether that is, you know, a debate between mayoral candidates or a, a preview of upcoming legislative bills or any of these many things that we host at the club that help p- people, help voters, help community member- members understand the issues and be engaged and pay attention to what their elected officials will do. I think those are important. And so are this, the many things we do to help with journalists, whether it's training sessions, whether it's seminars, whether it's panel discussions about a particular issue. Um, you know, this is a, my business is an imperfect business. We make mistakes. We make mistakes sometimes because we're human. We make mistakes sometimes because we get bad information. Um, but we, good journalists, I believe, try hard. I can give you an example of a conversation we had here yesterday. We had a story yesterday about a horrific series of sexual abuse allegations against three adults. Mm-hmm. And, and for two of the adults, some of the victims are their own children. And normally, in, in almost every story, we won't do anything that might identify a sexual assault victim who doesn't want to be identified. Occasionally there are stories when people come forward and say, basically, I want to tell my story about this. And that's one thing. But in this case, we had vulnerable people, children 
that were allegedly abused over many years by these people. And some of these victims were their own children. But so we had a long discussion yesterday about, well, how do we, how do we report fully on this and report that we, I mean, one of these, two of these people have million dollar bails. You know, these, this is serious, serious stuff. And should we just leave their names out of our coverage? I mean, that was the discussion we had yesterday. We ultimately decided that we were going to name them and we were going to take every other step we could to minimize the ability of somebody to try to figure out who the exact victims are. So we said they were their own children, but we didn't give any demographic information. We didn't say what, whether they were boys or girls. We didn't say what ages they were. We didn't say anything that would, that might've been a clue to who these victims were. And that was the compromise we struck. And it was after a long, thoughtful discussion here among, you know, our top news management, myself, and people in nine wants to know. And, and that was the conclusion we reached. And, and so I think that kind of thing is the kind of thing that, the Denver Press Club stands for and fosters, and that's thoughtful, ethical journalism that strives to bring important issues to light, hold public officials accountable, and um, help people be engaged in the community and understand how their tax dollars are being spent and how various communities are and, and organizations are trying to solve problems and all that sort of stuff. So I've been around the Denver Press Club for as, you know, I, I first walked through the door there when I was a student at Metro State, and uh, and I've been there for many events over the years. I've, I've helped for many years, I ha- but I just began serving on the board about four years ago, and I've been president for the past year. So, Well, thank God for stepping up. Journalism is so important. Our founders realized it. So is the fair administration of the rule of law, and that can't happen without good journalists. I really appreciate you, Kevin, especially you taking so much time to talk about your background, uh, the Denver Press Club, and all these interesting criminal cases in between. Can't thank you enough. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and uh, I I look forward to our next visit. Same to you, Craig. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much. You're welcome. Bye. All right. Bye. There was a purse, a jacket, and a lot of blood in the alley where police found the car. The suspects brutally beat Christine after killing her husband. Police believe robbery was the motive. When dawn came this morning, neighbors and friends were left in shock, simply wondering why. Why would they shoot him? Why would they shoot my best friend? I don't, I don't see the point, you know. I mean, what for? You know, for a car, for what, a couple bucks they had in their pocket? I mean, I just can't believe somebody would shoot somebody over something like that. Slaps you in the face real fast. It can happen to anybody, anywhere. Neighbors tried to cope with their grief and comfort each other. They can't understand why anyone would hurt Tom and Christine. The perfect young couple, they had their one-year wedding anniversary a week ago. Um, Couldn't have found nicer, more generous people. Friends say the couple liked the Capitol Hill area. Tom had a business nearby, a trendy clothing store called Emi Jimi. Today, it was dark and closed up, and it looked like someone had thrown a rock at the front door, cracking the glass. But police don't believe the haulers knew their attackers. They're still looking for them. We're going back to both scenes, 
the scene of the, the, the shooting and the scene where we located the vehicle. We're talking to people there. Witnesses have described two suspects. They are black men in the late 20s. One is about 5 foot 10, 160 pounds. The other, 6 foot 1, about 190 pounds. Both were wearing white tank shirts and tan pants that were sagging at the waist. If you know anything about them, call Denver Police. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined, it's all set up. So there's, it's like the, the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right, and if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Hey, if you like this show, please shout it out on your Purple Apple podcast app. It would be so wonderful if you would scroll down, spot that place to leave a five-star review and your personal review. Kind words appreciated. Thanks so much. Tell your friends. Troubadour. Hi, Craig. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for being with me on my birthday. It was a gas. It was a gas. And I'll tell you what's a classical gas, to borrow a musical expression, is that you are on YouTube now in a big way. Somebody posted for you Dave Gunder's music, and it's a great resource, especially for me. Yeah, well, thanks. Yes, it's for you can get it, and anyone can uh, who has who has interest can look up YouTube. Dave Gunder's music is what it's under. Subscribe, and you will find a classic album of yours that was perhaps a dark period. I don't know. I think it's before you met me. Can't be satisfied. What a name for an album. Right, and and that, it's named after a song, a Muddy Water song. Can't be satisfied. So you did all covers on this album? I did. And we found one so appropriate for this week where 
havoc was wrecked in Kentucky, just terrible, with the tornado, unprecedented December, 250 miles on the ground. You and I take our walks. You explain nature to me. Explain how a tornado can blow like that. Boy, I'll tell you, I've never heard of uh, a tornado making those that kind of tracking, you know, for, for hundreds of miles. That's amazing. Right. Poor Mayfield, Kentucky. But there it is, your classic cover song, Blow, Wind, Blow. I never heard that song before. Do you know who wrote it? I'm guessing it is Jimmy Rogers, um, who is a, a great black rhythm, mostly rhythm guitar player, blues player in, you know, during the time in Chicago, during the time of, of uh, Muddy Waters, Lightning Hopkins, those guys. But why has he got to be black? He got to be black to sing the blues? And what do you do? He Singing was, blues as a Jew. He was. Are uh, there Jew blues? Oh, Jews can sing the blues. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, there was Michael Bloomfield, the great uh, young guitar player and singer, um, who died young. He was in he was in the um, um, the uh, Blues Breakers band. This was your blues period. Well, I was at the time I was I was working on uh, learning some skills, you know, slide skills, acoustic blues mostly, and I was studying these guys, and I thought. You know, it'll be good to to actually try to do an album, uh, you know, presenting their music. What I like is we're such good friends now, but I like to see aspects of your life that occurred before I ever knew you. Well, this was one of them, Craig. It all brought up, it all came up to this this time. Well, I know I've yeah. influenced your modern work. You know how I know? Because the album name. You did. Absolutely. It It is. I have to say, I have to give you credit for the album. And I think your songs are getting better. First of all, you're not doing cover, you're doing your own. But this was just perfect for this week where we had a horrible windstorm in Colorado. Blow, wind, blow. And uh, I like the lyrics. They're like classic Dave Gunders lyrics involving the sun, the moon, the moon poking through the trees, that sort of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's a cover song. What about that windstorm? Not too bad around here. You work all over the metro. Any damage done that you know about? I talked to clients who were who drove who were driving to Colorado Springs on that day, and they called me up. They they had counted nine tractor tractor trailers that had blown over. It was a long trip for them. Yeah, they had to close down I twenty five from Denver to Colorado Springs. But it got me thinking about. The wind and all the metaphors that go with it and the winds of change. And, you know, on my birthday, because we took a walk, we talked about life. The winds of change can blow out of nowhere, right? And winds of good fortune, bad fortune, wind is really part of life. It is. And it's an apt uh, metaphor for the changes that can hit us fast. Right, like when I got a call from Kevin Vaughn in Nine News saying, hey, you remember that conviction you got on the Holler case? Guess what? It's being reexamined by your old law school. The Innocence Project out of CU Law is saying that you may have convicted an innocent man. And then I sat down for an interview. Thanks for watching it on Nine News at 10 o'clock. What'd you think? I enjoyed it, and it was great to see you as a young man. But you, you looked uh, like, you know, the, the, the footage they had of you conferring with, with, your, with your client, you were so caring, I could see. 
With and, uh, and Christina Holler. Right. God, with, she's with lovely. Yeah, she, and yeah. Then she was the victim in the case. And technically, and I know you're not a lawyer, but it's sort of like she's my client, but not really. I represent the people of the state of Colorado, which was a beautiful thing. You know why? Because they never called you in the middle of the night. But uh, Christina, my heart went out to her. And she was the victim, and we've remained close. And one cool thing about Kevin calling me is I had to call her and let her know before it hit the media. And she's magical. You know how some people will pick you up every time you talk to them? That's Christina Holler. And the whole world saw it when she testified on court TV, and she just captured people's hearts, mine too. And I saw my friends meet her and react that way. She just has an aura, and for that segment to start with me talking privately to her, maybe she had a microphone nearby. I don't think I knew I was being recorded, and uh, there we were after the verdict, and that same beautiful woman was on the phone with me when this happened, and she handled it with the equanimity of a magical person. Yeah, she... You know, you have to admire people who can be resilient, rebuild their lives, and um, not, you know, not fall to to becoming bitter um, and expecting the worst out of life, but rather, you know, re, re, rebuilding their lives. Here's what was cool about going to a victim and saying, I am a prosecutor. I get paid by the taxpayers of the state of Colorado, and I'm here to help you, and I'm not going— to ask you for anything, I'm just going to help you pursue justice. And I saw her when she was beat up and they broke her orbital bone and you saw how beautiful she is and delicate. Just the concept of slamming your fist into a woman's face like that and she was found naked and uh, the officers thought she was dead. Wow when they found her at 21st and Lafayette in an alley in her Honda, and she was left for dead mm-hmm. like that. And then to see her a couple days later and say, uh, I'm here to help. It might not have been a couple days later. It might have been a week or 10 days later because it took about a week for the case to come together and then for me to be assigned. But I know she was out of the hospital and hurting. So this takes me back. And to see myself back in the day, I, uh, my hair was a little thicker and my mustache was a lot blacker and I was taller. Anyway, I, uh, I, I, uh, I thank you for watching it. What else did you think when you saw it? Did you remember it at the time? Were you I, in Denver in the summer of violence? I, I was not, um, uh, I didn't remember. I think I was probably gone that summer, but, uh, but it was great to see you as a, as a young attorney and also, um, the, the footage, the, um, you know, the modern footage that they just, just where they recently recorded you, um, to see, you know, the changes and you, you, you're doing pretty good, Craig. You look good. 24 years later. Is that what it is? 27. Wow. 27 years later. Okay. Well, you're still standing tall, looking good. That's great to see. Now you're the man. At least I thought you were. I worried that you wrote this song because there's something about blow, wind, blow that bothers me. You know what it is? Tell me. It's uh, the fact that he says he, he woke up and his baby's not by his side, right? right? Yeah. And then he realizes, where is she? 
she's she's at some other guy's side. Yeah. But then he says, "Blow and blow, blow my baby back to me." For for why? So do you want to talk, or are you going to take her back after she's been unfaithful to you? I always thought that that was his that was his feeling. Yeah, he was good. taking her back. There are some blues lyrics that are. Uh, I would say they're not appropriate in, 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 in these days, not, not politically correct at all, because they talk about, you know, doing them in with a pistol or whatever. There was a lot of that harsh, right. harsh kind of— But yeah. then I got wondering, is he asking her back, like laying a trap, that he's going to be violent against her? Nothing in—no, nothing in the song, I think, I think uh, would, would lead us to think no, that he I would be violent. No, I hope not. No. Get that out of your mind. And, yes. Uh, nothing worse. I was always raised that way. My father, from an early age, maybe because I had a little sister, said, you never hit a woman. Mm. Now, I accidentally broke her nose a couple of times, but not with a punch, ever. Playing basketball, no doubt. You know, uh, I think once there was a crutch or a wheelchair, and I don't know. It just happened, or maybe throwing a ball. Things happen in life, but I've never hit a woman. Well, thank you. I'm glad you right. have. All right. Yes. Was that drilled into you, too? Yes. Good. Well, it was not even spoken. I mean, my my father said never. He never would have said never hit a woman. But I saw from my father's, right. you know, from 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 his example uh, that that would never never. It was never. We never had that. I was fortunate never to see that kind of violence or anger in my house. Anyway, the song ends appropriately, given her unfaithfulness. In my opinion, he says goodbye, baby. Right. You can have your own way. That's right. He moves on. You got to move on. The dogs are yapping. They might want to hear who let the dogs out. But what I want to hear is Blow Wind Blow, the perfect song for this week of tornadoes and big wind from our troubadour, Dave Gunders. Thank you, Truby. Thanks, Craig.
baby back to me great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is, you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if you're, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do, but like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep. And I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887. Or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. 
And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Hey, that's a great show. A lot of us are singing the blues because of COVID and I don't know, it's just a tough time for democracy in America. But life goes on and our show goes on. I've got a great Christmas show planned for you. Same with New Year's. I hope you have the happiest of holidays. Thanks to our troubadour for blow, wind, blow on this windy week. We'll keep following the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. Watch for my column in the Colorado Sun. And thank you for every Saturday morning tuning in. Kevin Vaughn, you are a special guest. What a great journalist you are. Good luck at Nine News and with the Denver Press Club. Until next time, bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.